So Hebrews chapter 13, verses 4 to 6, which is on page 1212. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Thank you very much, Bethany. You will have noticed that tonight's passage relates to two important topics, two things of which much of human nature is geared towards namely sex and money. I'm conscious that these verses are sufficiently short that tonight's sermon forms something of a topical sermon. And as such, I'm going to apologise in advance if there's anything I've left out, because it's very easy to leave things out of topics like these. Um, And please do catch my ear afterwards if what I say in the next 20 minutes doesn't encompass what you're hoping to hear. But hopefully it'll encompass at least some of what you're hoping to hear. Today's sermon is part of a series we're preaching bit by bit through the book of Hebrews. Last week we looked at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 13, and next week we're going to look at verses 7 to 9 or so. Now I point that out uh, by by way of further preface, just to make the point that we let scripture itself set the agenda for our preaching. We don't preach on these topics any more than the Bible itself talks about them, or at least we aim not to. And that's important to remember in case we are led to think that the church is preoccupied with topics like these. It's always going on about sex and money and so on. The Bible speaks to the full range of human experience in just the proportions which we need now, it just so happens that both of the topics for tonight's, in tonight's reading, are particular areas of difficulty for our culture. So any time they are mentioned in the course of preaching a series like this, it can feel especially awkward, uncomfortable, challenging, and even embarrassing. But we do need to listen all the more carefully to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us here Um, on topics that are countercultural like this. Simon noted last week that the whole of chapter 13 of Hebrews is the application section of the letter. After 12 chapters setting out the superiority of Christ's high priesthood, a better sacrifice in a better temple, with better ritual, uh, enacting a better covenant... We now have come to what all of this means for how we live day to day. The hinge verse between the 12 chapters and the one at the end was at the end of chapter 12, which said, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. The good news of a kingdom that cannot be shaken ruled by the perfect priest-king in the order of Melchizedek, prompts us to acceptable worship of God. Those who 
turn to Christ in repentance and faith, continue to live very much in this world. But they also become inheritors of another. This world will be shaken, as Hebrews puts it. That is destroyed at the end of time. But the world we have come to share in, the new creation, will remain established. That is the sure and certain hope we have as Christians. Acceptable worship in response of our priest king, Jesus, involves the whole of our lives. Certainly not just coming to church on a Sunday. We offer up all of ourselves as an offering to him. And that certainly includes, among other things listed in Hebrews chapter 13, the realms we're thinking about today of romantic love and finance. Firstly then, acceptable worship includes a godly attitude to romantic love and to marriage. So that verse 4 again from our reading. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. There are commands here both for those who are married specifically and also for the whole church. Firstly, everyone, married or not, is to honour the institution of marriage. The church's wedding service rather poetically states that marriage was instituted in the time of man's innocency. That is, before the fall in the Garden of Eden, between Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman. This first marriage between one man and one woman for life set the pattern for all future marriage. It is the right place for sexual expression, the formation of new families, and the generation and nurture of children. That's what we are all, married or not, to honour, because this is how God has designed us. To go contrary to that pattern is to go contrary to his design, and thus to presume to know better than him. The word used here is for honour is timaeos in the original Greek. That's the same word used in First Peter, for example, in its commands to honour the emperor. Think about the way in which we honour the emperors of our day, the honour shown to Her Majesty the Queen at her funeral just a few weeks ago. Magnificent processions, grandiose services, massed honour guards, and the enormous queue which many of us joined to see her lying in state. That's the honour that we as Christians should pay to biblical marriage, one man and one woman for life. No one planning the Queen's funeral was looking for ways to cut corners with the organisation or to minimise the event. Honouring her, honouring the Emperor or the Queen, meant pulling out all the stops doing it properly, by the book. And so also for us, honouring marriage does not mean looking for loopholes and shortcuts, pretending that the modern world deserves a new morality, as if human nature has fundamentally changed, but rather doing all we can to uphold, defend and protect marriages within our church and in society more widely. It's a sad fact that this institution of marriage has been much dishonoured through history, not least by the extensive polygamy 
as recorded in the Old Testament. The law of Moses never endorsed this behaviour, but did seek to regulate and to restrain it. By the time that the letter of the, to the Hebrews was written, uh, marriage was dishonoured in other ways, including with satirical same-sex couplings, such as between the Emperor Nero and Sporus. The commands to honour marriage, rather than to undermine, degrade, or mock it, was countercultural then, and remains countercultural today. Honouring marriage is becoming harder for us year by year, but remains as important as ever. Reserving sexual expression to the bounds of marriage is the safest and best place for it. Preserving the indissolubility of marriage vows in a society which has largely forgotten the meaning of an oath is tough. Resisting the sustained programme of cheapening and redefining marriage going on around us, both outside and within the church, is a necessary outworking of the commands to honour marriage. And this countercultural living is all worthwhile because of the surpassing value of having Jesus as our high priest, interceding for us in heaven, welcoming us into his eternal, unshakable kingdom. For those specifically who are married, the command in verse 4 is to keep the marriage bed pure. And that means faithfulness to our marriage vows. The marriage bed is used in the verse as a symbol and metaphor of the whole of marriage. And keeping it pure means keeping the whole marriage pure and free of other relationally exclusive and sexual involvements apart from with one spouse. This restriction extends not only to actual physical relations, but also to the life of the mind, whose sexual preoccupations must be reserved for marriage. When I was at school, I served in the cadet force for three years. We had some typically fastidious drill sergeants in our cadet unit who kept a very close eye on our uniforms and the shininess of our boots. For three years, I was engaged in an ongoing struggle to keep my parade boots totally free of the slightest speck of dirt. I had to keep those boots pure. Christians who are married are called to the same level of dedication year after year to keeping their marriages pure. Have ungodly influences crept in? Are there stolen glances in another person's direction or worse? Turn away, scrub up, and keep the marriage bed pure for Jesus' sake, for the sake of our great high priest. That command to purity comes with a stick as well as a carrot. Whilst enjoying the general motivation of Jesus' unshakable kingdom, we're also reminded in this verse, that God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Now, God will judge all sinful behaviour of whatever sort, but for some reason, sexual sin is singled out here in this list in chapter 13 as being particularly prone to judgment. 
perhaps because of its more serious nature. All sins will be forgiven in Christ for those who turn to him. But Christians must strive against this sin in our lives. So if we have become relaxed about any sort of sin in our lives, including those relating to this area of life, it's a concerning sign that we don't care for holiness or that Jesus died for these sins. Honour marriage, keep it pure. Secondly, and more briefly, acceptable worship involves a godly attitude towards money. Verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now this doesn't, verse doesn't say keep your life free of money, but keep it free from the love of money. Money is a necessity of life. And Jesus doesn't promote a sort of monastic retreat from the global economy for all of his followers. But he does command us to avoid worshipping material well-being. Avoiding the love of money goes hand in hand with being content with what we have. Those who aren't are content don't seek anything further. In addition, they have all they need. They're happy where they are. They have enough. Our ability as Christians to be content flows from the reality of God's being with us. So verse 5 continues. God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, verse 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Those two quotations come from the Old Testament, one from Joshua chapter 1, the other from Psalm 118, respectively. And the first of those was originally spoken by God to Joshua as he was commissioned to conquer the land of Canaan. And this is a very apt requotation for Christians as we likewise are coming into a promised land, the kingdom of God. God's covenant with us here is unbreakable. He will never leave us, never cast us from his kingdom. We've been looking this week in home groups at John chapter 10, where Jesus promises that he will not let his sheep go. The second quotation from Psalm 118 comes in the context of the psalmist experiencing hardship, but remembering God's steadfast love promised so long ago to his ancestor through Joshua. It's the response of faith. You've promised, therefore now I won't be afraid. Again, this coheres well with the experiences of the letter's recipients, the Hebrews, and in general with that of the church through history. Though troubles may be crowding around us in all sorts of different forms, the Lord is our helper, the one who will never leave us. The living God is with us, not just a king in a faraway, yet-to-be-entered country, but a very present reality, reigning in the midst of this world. He is the one who holds all peoples in the palm of his hand, 
and who ordered and upholds the universe with the word of his power. What more could we need than him? What's the point of devoting ourselves to worldly riches when they're already all held by our king? The children of God will inherit all things. So to strive after passing riches is a denial and a disfigurement of our redeemed nature. Far better, far more sensible to simply be content. Now that doesn't mean we need to feel bad about earning money. As I've said already, that's very much needed for life. But let's earn to live rather than live to earn. And as we keep that perspective correctly, we'll find that the Lord richly provides for us more fully than in a life geared around ever greater paychecks. I'm going to stop there and let's pray and ask for the Lord's help in all of these things. We thank you, Lord Jesus, our high priest, our king, who loved us while we were still far off for membership of your eternal, unshakable kingdom. Help us, we pray, to live faithfully as members of that kingdom, serving you with our whole lives. May this be our joyful sacrifice of praise, especially with the romantic and financial aspects of our lives. And we ask this in your name. Amen.